Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek, episode 126. I'm Andrew. And I am Dude. And today we are going to be talking about Star Trek. Given the fact that Star Trek Discovery, the latest in the Star Trek franchise, premiered for us yesterday, a couple days ago uh, when this episode airs, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to discuss the history of Star Trek, specifically the history of the franchise and how we got from you know a show that was canceled in the mid 1960s to a brand new show now and over 700 hours of television that is a lot of binge watching and i have done it all <laughs> you've all, done it all almost times. almost well i've done certain ones many many times i've done ds9 about four times i'm a little biased on that one but you know whatever so i think kind of the obvious place to start talking about star trek is with gene roddenberry the creator of star trek the grandpa Poobah brainchild, the George Lucas, if, if you will, of Star Trek. Very much so. George is probably a nicer person from, from some of the stories that I think you and I have come across in our research the, the last couple yep. of weeks. But certainly the driving force, the creative spark behind the original Star Trek, and really the Star Trek ethos, if you will, the feel of the series that has continued on throughout all of Star Trek. Yeah, he was the man of vision. He was like, this is how it's going to be. Yes. And he knew what he wanted. Absolutely. So Gene Roddenberry was born in El Paso, Texas in August 19th of 1921. And... As a young man, joined the Army Air Corps just prior to World War II by about a couple of months and ended up flying B-17s out in the Pacific, did 89 missions and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal. Afterwards, Gene took up flying for Pan Am and Gene actually survived three different plane crashes, two during the Second World War and one while flying for Pan Am. He survived a plane crash into the Syrian desert and being the senior crew member that survived, Roddenberry took it upon himself and made sure that he and the 19 other survivors were rescued. Anyone who's familiar with the oatmeal... Was he shot down during wartime, or was he? were they just plane crashes? They were plane crashes. One was a mechanical failure after takeoff that he was pilot of, although two, two crew members were actually killed in that one. A second one, he was a passenger on a military aircraft for, and then this third one uh, with Pan Am had a dual engine failure and the plane caught fire. Yeah, I'm not flying with this guy. No. Just not going to do it. Just not going to do it. I don't, I don't even care. This, this is like Denzel Washington or Tom Hanks behind the stick of a plane. Just not doing it. Or uh, Billy Joel behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> yeah, or all those guys who like got sick in airplane. Or, Har- <laughs> or, or or Harrison Ford in a plane. So many options. <laughs> there yeah. really are. Anyone who's familiar with the comic site The Oatmeal, they did a really great comic about Gene Roddenberry and this particular plane crash and his conversations with one of the passengers as the plane was going down. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, Roddenberry has survived. He left Pan Am in the 1950s to pursue a career in writing. So Gene had started writing during the Second World War and had actually submitted some short stories and some poetry. And he got published in a couple of different magazines like The New Yorker. But after leaving Pan Am, he decided that he wanted to work on becoming a writer more. So he moved out to Los Angeles to jump on the bandwagon that was television. While he was doing that, he still needed to pay his bills. So he joined the LAPD, worked as a traffic cop for about 16 months before he became the speechwriter for the LAPD chief of police. You gotta love it. Or it's like everyone's going to LAPD. 
LA to be, to be famous, be a director, a writer, actor, most of them decide to be waiters or waitresses. This guy is like, you know what? I'll be a cop. I believe Roddenberry's father was a police officer. So he's kind was of... He? I mean, it's still, it's like, I mean, I get it. He's a traffic cop, but right. I figured, you know, if you want to like make it in Hollywood, can we, can you pick a job that's slightly less stressful? Right. I mean, I get it's right. a traffic cop, but it's also a traffic cop in LA. Yeah, but it's LA in the 50s. Yeah, that's when the, everyone's just learning how to use cars. They just figured that part out. <laughs> I wouldn't trust them. At any rate, in 1956, Roddenberry leaves the LAPD to really focus on writing, and he was moderately successful as a freelance writer. Writer, wrote for a number of television shows, including uh, several police dramas like Dragnet. He was also a technical advisor for several police shows. And then just prior to Star Trek, he actually wrote several failed pilots, including a law procedural that would have starred DeForest Kelly, who obviously we all know as Dr. McCoy from the original Star Trek. So that actually brings us up to the early 1960s, specifically 1964, where Gene Roddenberry began to submit proposals for Star Trek. At this point, he's written his first script and he has sent it off to the Writers Guild and he is now in the process of shopping his his script around. And he starts off by sending it to MGM. They say no. And that really starts kind of a chain reaction of several rejections. Eventually, however, the show is picked up by the production company Desilu. Now that sounds familiar. That is the production company that was owned by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Now I think you might, you might have to explain that because our viewership may be too young to know what who, who those names are. That's fair. So Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz are the stars of the famous, incredible show I Love Lucy. So, I mean, the remarkably successful 1950s sitcom I Love Lucy. Right. The, she, I mean, she went on to make like a few other Lucy shows into the 70s. Yep. But but the, but this I is, Love Lucy was the anchor of that production company. Is the anchor of the production company, and I Love Lucy is one of the quintessential foundations of television sitcoms. Yep. Absolutely. That's almost where the book starts. Mm -hmm. At this point, Lucille Ball was running the production company herself. She had bought out Desi after they had divorced. And so they picked up Star Trek and through Desilu as a production company, they started trying to get it picked up by one of the networks. Uh, originally, it was offered to CBS, but CBS passed because they had already picked up a show that was similar in feel that a lot of people will know, Lost in Space. Mm -hmm. What's funny about Lucy picking up Star Trek is that first she didn't know she was picking up a science fiction show she thought she was picking up a show about celebrities in the USO yes that's what I find really and the other show she picked up at the time this is a uh, like circa 64 is Mission Impossible yeah I mean which also becomes a, a very famous franchise yeah I was saying, not only was she herself fundamental in the early days of television as an as an actress and as a as a star but i mean desi lu had these hits what i think is funny is she didn't seem to have buyer's remorse because she's like star trek all right i know what that's going to be about signs on to it and then they explain it to her and she i could just imagine her like what, what? ah fine go for it <laughs> like what fine Right, well, I, I think once they explained it to her, though, I think she saw the potential because after CBS passes, NBC picks up the show and they record a pilot that is the infamous The Cage. NBC hated the pilot. They thought the show was too cerebral. They hated the Spock character. They hated the fact that it was a female first officer. And so they were going to they were going to pass. And Lucille Ball pushed to have a second pilot made because she saw the potential in the show. Right. And that that's the pilot became where no man has gone before. Yeah, after she 
she actually saw it, she was like, oh, okay, this could work. Yeah. Now, kind of as a side note, one of her production staff told her not to go through with this because right. the price of the show, if it went into production, was going to ruin Desilu. They were going to yeah, lose thousands expensive. of dollars per episode. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. So the new pilot gets filmed. Roddenberry refuses to get rid of Spock, but he does go ahead and get rid of the female first officer character who is affectionately known as number one, mm -hmm. which is where uh, when we get to Star Trek The Next Generation, where Picard starts referring to Riker as number one, that's where that comes from. Uh, also, interestingly enough, the character of number one is played by the actress Majel Barrett, who later becomes Gene Roddenberry's wife. And she is the only person to have been in every Star Trek series I don't know if they'll they'll find a way to have her shoehorn her into Discovery because uh, she's she is now currently deceased. But she has been in every Star Trek series up until and Discovery. And also, it, that pilot had the film actor Jeffrey Hunter in it, who is in one of my favorite movies of all time, The Searchers, and probably is more well known for playing Jesus Christ in King of Kings. And he was Captain Pike, who I, I guess Hunter just didn't see a future in the show and was kind of okay with leaving. Well, I mean, to be fair, you know, in a lot of ways, there wasn't a huge feature in this show. Right. So, Star Trek premieres on September 8th, 1965 with the episode The Man Trap. And it does reasonably well. It's picked up for a second season, but after the second season, Star Trek gets cancelled due to low ratings. And keep in mind, at the time, it was competing with, like, two really big shows, like My Three Sons and Bewitched. At the time, these were big deal shows. Well, and it's also important to keep in mind, this is still the era of three networks. There were three mm -hmm. television channels, so you didn't have this broad spectrum to have to compete against. Three shows fought against each other at a time slot. Yeah, and you needed big numbers to survive. So yeah. even Star Trek's numbers seem impressive today. Yeah, they make perfect sense in an age of paid premium cable, 500 channels, streaming services. It be fantastic today but back then it was like no no you had to crush to survive yeah now in one of the earliest recorded instances of this there was a massive fan outcry to bring star trek back fans bombarded the nbc headquarters with letters to save star trek and star trek actually got picked up for a third season but it was put in the worst possible time slot the 10 o'clock on friday death slot mm -hmm. and after a third season star trek was canceled at just 79 episodes so but important still good enough for syndication. Roddenberry and Desilu put, or really at this point it's Roddenberry and Paramount, pushed really hard for Star Trek to go into syndication. It was 79 episodes, and the traditional threshold for syndication is 100 episodes. So mm -hmm. they were almost a full season below that threshold, but they made it into syndication anyway. And almost immediately, NBC realizes they screwed up. Yep. So legend has it, and I've read some articles that don't necessarily contradict this, but downplay the significance a little bit, but legend has it that the year Star Trek got canceled was the last year that the major networks didn't break down TV ratings by demographics. Mm. And if they had, they would have seen that Star Trek was huge for the very important 18 to 35 year old male demographic. That's a major target demographic for advertisers. Money, money, money. Absolutely. So had they known that, they would have kept Star Trek on the air. But they didn't. Yeah, if you was... listen to this podcast, you know that we have no ability to have any type of impulse control when it comes to discretionary spending. Just no, like none. we don't. No, none. Not at all. Not uh, even a little bit. I'm lucky I have a house. Yeah, I'm lucky I have pants. Oh, no, see, the house might have been an impulse buy. I don't remember. <laughs> so, despite getting canceled, it got picked up for syndication. And it does very well in syndication. And Star Trek slowly begins to pick up this 
following. And actually in 1972 was the very first Star Trek convention in New York. So we're talking only three years after the show was canceled that the show warranted a convention. And again, keep in mind, this is in the days before things like San Diego Comic-Con. It's actually right I want to run down real quick like the original cast because I do think it's important to mention like after they they swapped everyone out, you eventually solidify the cast that we've all known, come sure. to know and love. Sure. So we have Captain Kirk who's played by William Shatner. Mr. Shatner. Mr. Spock, who is played by Leonard Nimoy. You have Dr. Leonard McCoy, Bones, who is played by DeForest Kelly, as previously mentioned. You have Uhura, who is played by Nichelle Nichols. You have... Which, by the way, you want to mention the importance of casting a black woman in the particular role she had at that time in American history. Absolutely. So, Nichelle Nichols again, very important, had a prominent role on the bridge of the Enterprise with the communications officer. It's generally accepted that Shatner and Nichols had the first interracial kiss on television. Brown, chicken, brown, brown. I actually believe it was the second one. It was just the more widely known interracial kiss. And at one point, Nichols was actually contemplating leaving Star Trek and a fan convinced her to keep doing what she was doing. And that particular fan was Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh. He actually personally approached her and told her how important what she was doing was and that conversation convinced her to stay on the show yeah big deal so back to the cast did, did you mean yeah we we were gonna say we mentioned scotty i was about to say yeah we have montgomery scott who is played by oh crap i'm forgetting his name james Duhan. james Duhan, thank you you have sulu uh who is played by george takei and you have Chekhov, who is played by walter koenig and again check an interesting is, fact about him i didn't realize he came in at the second season Second season, fun fact uh, about Star Trek Two: there is the point where Khan says, I never forget a face, referring to Chekhov. Mm -hmm. Chekhov wasn't on the show until after Khan's episode. Right, Khan was episode, it was in season one. It was the Botany Bay episode. The Space Seed, I actually, no, I believe Space Seed was episode two, or season two, but it was early before Chekhov showed up. Oh. So yeah, so Walter Koenig was a late addition. Also an interesting choice, because Chekhov obviously is a, a Russian character, and this is the height of the Cold War. Yeah, and Takei was Japanese, so you you had yep. a black woman, a Japanese man, and a, and a Russian, and, of course, uh, an alien. Right. And it's funny because people thought that the Spock character would be too demonic. Yeah, and then the eyebrows and the ears. Yeah, because of the ears. And then about three episodes in, NBC started demanding more Spock because of how popular he was. Everyone wants more Spock in their life. I mean, I, w I would have taken more Leonard Nimoy in my life. Yep, yeah. There's already a fair amount of Leonard Nimoy in my life, so, you know. <laughs> so, with the building popularity of Star Trek... Star Trek actually gets picked up as an animated series for 22 episodes starting in September of 1973. Think and like Hanna-Barbera, Scooby-Doo style. It is terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, the animation, when you talk about Scooby-Doo, it is actually generally considered worst animation quality than the, the early episodes of Scooby-Doo. Worst animation ever. And that actually led to the show only running for 22 episodes, despite the fact that most of the original cast reunited in order to do the voices. Mm -hmm. I mean, I personally kind of think that that was more of a Bill Shatner needs some money in the uh, in the till there. But <laughs> so starting in the mid 70s, there is a lot of on again, off again talk about doing a Star Trek film. I believe it starts somewhere in the, around 1975 is where the actual push starts coming from. And the original cast was hit and miss about coming back. Nimoy was very much against it. And 
eventually they decide to move forward with a second Star Trek series. It was intended to be called Star Trek Phase 2, and they actually ended up replacing uh, Nimoy's character as Spock with a character named Zahn. They had already done casting and some screen testing with the actor. Was anyone we know or just someone who just kind of got lost into the dustbin of Hollywood history? He hasn't really done much. He is briefly in Star Trek the motion picture as the commander of the Federation space station that gets absorbed. <clears throat> so the pilot for this series was based on an Alan Dean Foster story and everybody got on board for this new series. They went, they pitched it to Paramount in August of 1977 and the response they got was that's great that's just the Star Trek movie we've been looking for <laughs> because it's the summer of 1977 and Star Wars is the biggest hit in Hollywood history isn't that like the the irony is that it takes Star Wars to kind of save Star Trek it, it is especially given how how much the fans see competition mm -hmm. yeah that that is always entertaining me. I mean you and I are both huge Star Wars and Star Trek fans I've never quite understood the mass rivalry between the two franchises in in the eyes of the fans but but yeah there is there is that historical irony that yep. star star wars is really responsible in large part for saving star trek yep so like i said originally leonard nimoy not on board i'm not doing this crap again right but at this point they decide they're going to bring back the entire original cast and i've heard the story from not personally, but I've heard the producer Jeffrey Katzenberg talking about getting Nimoy to come back. And at one point he, he says, I don't remember everything that happened in the meeting. He's like, but I know at one point I, we were in a restaurant in New York and I was on my knees begging. <laughs> and eventually Nimoy agrees to come back and join the rest of his cast members. And they made <laughs> Star Trek the motion picture. Everybody recognizes Star Trek motion picture, the motion picture for what it is. It obviously it brings back the franchise. It helps breathe new life into this property. It's not necessarily the best movie. It, but it does have a bald chick in it. It does. Pretty awesome. And to be honest, it actually does fairly well. And the dad from Seventh Heaven, which was amazing. Yep. If you look at suggested gross for the films, Star Trek The Motion Picture actually has the second highest gross of any of the Star Trek films. Mm. Again, again, this is this is adjusted for 2017 dollars. But Star Trek The Motion Picture has the second number right behind the Star Trek reboot from 2009. So, I mean, it is generally a hit. And it is accepted that it brings that, that life back into Star Trek. You know, one of the interesting things, and it kind of continues from here. So Gene Roddenberry is listed as the executive producer for Star Trek The Motion Picture. That's It's the only one of the films that Roddenberry is a producer of. And in a lot of ways, Roddenberry was kind of lost in between really the end of the original Star Trek and the beginning of Next Generation with this one little exception. Roddenberry had a lot of failed pilots in this time, and he and his wife actually really made money by going to Star Trek conventions and selling merchandise. Gotta get that merch money, man. Yeah, but I mean, they really they really struggled. Now, obviously, you know, the merchandise was a little bit different pre-Star Wars, and with the subsequent films was obviously more Star Wars-esque. But yeah, I mean, Gene Roddenberry really survived on the fans, if you will. One of the other things to keep in mind is that although it's based on an Alan Dean Foster script, the film wasn't really finished. And it actually is generally accepted that Shatner and Nimoy had a lot to do with the ending of the film. The two of them fairly consistently made script and plot changes as they went. Like on the fly. On the fly or, or Nimoy actually was known to basically after filming was done, he and some of the other folks, uh, some of the production staff would meet up and basically go over the next day's material and he would 
would suggest changes. Mm. So on the fly, but not like necessarily on the spot, so to speak. Nimoy's credited with the the tier scene, the single tier for V'ger. Mm-hmm. Shatner and Nimoy kind of pieced together a lot of the ending of, of the film. It's also the first experience a lot of these actors have with blue screen. So, so I mean, remember, Star Trek is an extremely low budget production, even in the films. Mm-hmm. And they make the, they make the most out of it, too. You got to give them a lot of credit. They absolutely do. I mean, Star Trek has made fantastic effect out of shaking the camera. I mean, that is, that is their go-to effect. And fake flopping. I mean, they flop like the NBA players. Like, that's really where, that's how, like, no, they, no, that's no, no, the no, NBA no. players they don't, learn it. They, no, they, 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 don't, from they don't flop like NBA players. They flop like Italian soccer players. <laughs> if we're going to, if we're going to, yeah, if we're going to talk about, you know, levels of flopping, LeBron's got nothing on Italian <laughs> soccer <laughs> players. You, yeah, you know, you want to go, you want to go watch it, go watch Juventus. <laughs> And most of our fans have no idea what I'm talking about now. No, we, we dipped into sports. There was a there broke a cardinal rule. Yeah, LeBron plays basketball. It's the big orange thing. <laughs> Rich guys, Jake Paul, Jake Paul. <laughs> So after the success of Star Trek The Motion Picture, we move on to Star Trek II, which is generally accepted to be the best of all of the Star Trek films. Yeah, I think that you have to pause here for a second because to me, this feels like this movie set the tone for the franchise in the popular culture's mind. It absolutely does. And a lot of that has to do, or a lot of that comes from director Nicholas Meyer. Meyer brought a more militaristic feel to Star Trek and loosely based the, not the plot but the feel of the film on the Horatio Hornblower novels and that rubbed uh, Roddenberry the wrong way a little bit didn't it it, it did and it's funny because Meyer didn't remember that until his his alma mater and I cannot remember what university it is it's somewhere in the Midwest but I can't remember which one they were doing an exhibit of a lot of his papers and mm-hmm. he went back and looked at some of them and some of the correspondence between he and Roddenberry were, were pretty heated and there's an interview out there where he says I don't even remember being like that he's like I guess I just blocked a lot of it out <laughs> Just didn't want to talk about it anymore. No more. And like I said, Star Trek Two generally accepted as the best film of them. Probably second would be uh, Star Trek First Contact from the Next Generation series. Yeah, that's that's, gen- that's that's the general consensus. Yeah, and the end of this film, you know, without spoiling too much. I think we can spoil. I yeah, think, yeah, I think we can spoil. Yeah, right. At the end of the film, Spock dies, and this is a huge deal. Wait, so- Spock dies? Wait, whoa, hold on, you tell me that part. Yep. I, <laughs> Damn I, it. I, I tried to warn you. God. All right. So at the end of the film, Spock dies, and this was basically meant to let Leonard Nimoy out of the franchise Done. because it was fairly clear he didn't really want to keep doing this. I don't I don't remember the date exactly, but and at one point Nimoy actually wrote a book saying I am not Mr. Spock. Right? He very much wanted to distance himself from the franchise, and in fact, so did several of the actors. I mean, Shatner as well, because they considered themselves to be serious actors, and they really wanted to be able to move on from these characters and do other roles. Mm-hmm. But having said that, this film then sets up really the next two films before the age of the kind of the modern age where everything's got to be a trilogy or these multi multi-film franchises this really does kind of set up a trilogy of films that i don't know that necessarily was intended to be that way it basically played out like that yeah is these three films basically just run as one continuation of the other right you basically have you have wrath of khan the search for spock and voyage home the voyage home basically create an impromptu trilogy yeah this is also apparently the first of the star trek films in which the production crew started saving props and sets in between hmm so the bridge set we see in the next several films, for the most part, is the same bridge that we see from Star Trek II onward. It's also fascinating. One, the bridge of the Enterprise and the bridge of the Reliant are the same set with a little bit of redressing. Yep. But more interestingly, you have 
the the main protagonist and the main villain Kirk and Khan that are never in the same place together the two of them are never in the same room together they are always facing off against one another at a distance is that the case even in the TV show no in the show just, in the show yeah, they're the show they meet each other I mean the show in the end the show they get in a fist fight oh, Kirk right. beats him with a metal rod I will beat you with a metal stick son I don't care if you're have an Asian name being played by a Latino who's genetically altered from the past don't care that chest Metal man stick. i don't care if it's plastic no did anyone settle that like before we go on did we we're talking about the production i was under the impression that in wrath of khan that's his pecs i don't think so i you know i, I don't think so i was either, under but i am i was under was. i was under that same impression but i i believe i've seen an interview with montalban that said it was not he was in, i mean he's okay. always been in good shape but yeah i don't think he was ever in that good a shape <laughs> that <laughs> that's, okay that's like that's like that. arnold schwarzenegger good shape like those yeah. pecs. Like, I, you know, he is a superior being. I get it. Yeah. Like, I get it. I get it. I love how he plays that character. Yeah. Just, um, in the original series and in the in the films, it's just fantastic. The fact that they were able to get him back is just a significant part of what makes that film so great. So th that creates kind of the, I don't know, what do you want? I don't know what trilogy you want to call it. I guess the Spock trilogy, because Spock really is the one true central focus throughout those three. He is. And and as you get to the, the fifth and sixth film, something else interesting happens because they're filming the original cast movies but a new television show is starting at the same time these movies are still out or coming out. Yes. Now, it's kind of important to note that, again, Nimoy wasn't overly thrilled about the idea of coming back, and the studio basically bribed him to come back to the franchise by allowing him to direct Star Trek 3 and 4. And it definitely shows. There's a real up and down to these Star Trek films in this this era. You know, 1 is okay, 2 is great, 3 is not so good. You, yeah. and, you and I don't particularly care for 4, but 4 is a fan favorite in general it's weird you're right there are people who really defend four and i'll never understand it but that's neither here nor there right five is very bad yeah i, I and, haven't seen five in a long time and six is not bad you and i you and i personally like it but we tend to like it more than other people do that's true so like i feel about six the way i think other people feel about four and other people feel about i i would agree you and six i, you and the way I feel, the I feel way. about when i watched it for the first time i truly thought this was the adventure movie you wanted from a star trek film like this was just what you want i don't care that it's predictable it doesn't matter i wanted predictable i wanted fun and that's what i got out of it right and quick side story we told that to walter koning at a convention <laughs> years ago and uh he did not <laughs> agree with that assessment he apologized yeah, he did i don't i you and i still i still don't understand why he apologized for star trek 6 but he did he did yeah i don't know just, look just i'm uh, giving you a compliment dude just take it as a side note he's a very he was a very nice man but uh he's very nice yeah it was that was a very bizarre experience so star trek 3 and four don't do a whole lot for us with no. a few exceptions in star trek three there are a few important things to come out of star trek three blowing up of the enterprise well the destruction of the enterprise in part but from a it larger sets, sets that tone <laughs> it does but from a larger franchise standpoint it adds the klingon bird of prey mm -hmm. the space dock the excelsior class starship and mm -hmm. this is where klingon is developed as an actual language they Thanks actually hired a linguist to develop a klingon language tolkien style very much so there's a great dvd special feature about his development of the klingon language and how he went out of his way to use the most non-human means of doing things like sound combinations that aren't used together in human languages sentence structure that is the least used in any human language it's, it's very fascinating mm -hmm. it also transforms the genesis device which is kind of this almost almost a 
device of hope in Star Trek II into an analogy for the atomic bomb and the Cold War arms race. Mm -hmm. And that really is kind of emblematic of a lot of Star Trek because it becomes, uh, not the Genesis device, but Star Trek is known for these analogies. You know, we talk about Gene Roddenberry's vision and what he put into this franchise in terms of the, the direction it goes. And he very much wanted to be able to talk about these kinds of social issues in a time where television censors wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Star Trek 3... Uh, Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4 come out in uh, 1982 and 19... I'm sorry, 1984 and 1986, respectively. And in 1986, as part of the celebration for Star Trek's 20th anniversary, Paramount announces that they are going to launch a new Star Trek series. And this series will become Star Trek The Next Generation, though it goes through a few hiccups. And this is where we'll leave off for this week. Join us next week for part two, where we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, the reboot films, and Star Trek Discovery. All right, folks. If you like what we do, make sure you head on over to thereforegeek.com. Check out our blog posts on our podcast. You can, fi- you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So once again, I'm Andrew. I'm the dude. Live long and prosper.